You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Good morning. You can take a seat. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today, as we have been for some time. So you can go ahead and start turning there as I kind of get us kicked off here. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under your seat or near you, so you can grab that. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Pastor Josh walked us through the Beatitudes, the blessed are the, blessed are the passage that starts off the Sermon on the Mount. And we saw that at the center of the Beatitudes are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and then receive mercy and show mercy. And so Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount really by identifying who the citizens of his kingdom are. That's their identity. Who are the people who dwell under his rule and reign? They are poor in spirit. They mourn, mourn over their fallen state and the fallen state of the world. They are meek rather than ambitious. They are hunger, hungry for righteousness. They thirst for it. They show mercy because they've received mercy. They have a pure heart in their devotion to God. They make peace and they persevere under persecution. The Beatitudes decide who the, describe who the redeemed in the kingdom are. And the passage we're going to read this week is describing the purpose of the kingdom. Why do the kingdom citizens exist? Okay, we learned who they are last week. This week we're going to learn why they exist. Why do the citizens of the kingdom exist? What's their role in the world? And then in the following weeks, uh, we're going to learn about Christ's kingdom manifesto for, for like his laws of the kingdom. And so as we drill into this week's passage, we need to accomplish the following task to answer these, these questions here. First, we're going to chew on some metaphors. Uh, metaphors, poetic language, describe a reality. Uh, what is salt? What does he mean by light? We're going to read that here in a minute. And we're going to also see that the purpose of the kingdom has a really cool, really strong Old Testament uh, connection. That's the second task this morning. And then finally, I just want to get really practical in describing what it means for us to be salt and light here in 2021. And to do that, we're going to look at the past. I think there's actually like a really unique episode of church history that has some eerie similarities to our situation as well. And so by learning how they acted as salt and light in their kingdom, sorry, in their community, I think there's a lot for us to learn from. So if you're ready, we're going to read our passage for today. This is the word of God. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So act as, as an act of reverence, please give it your full attention as it is read in your presence. This is Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the first metaphor that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom is that of salt. Salt was an essential resource in the ancient world, and really it is still today. And its primary purpose was that as a preservative for like fish or meat, things like that. Uh, but in a world before electricity, before refrigeration, especially in a warm desert climate where you're not going to dig out a root cellar really, uh, the only way to preserve, especially meat, long-term was to either like rub it in salt or soak it in like a salt brine or something like that. 
and make it into a kind of jerky. Uh, so like imagine you're living in a village and you've slaughtered some animals for like a festival or something like that and you have some leftover meat at the end of your party. Uh, that's going to be rotten within just a few hours if you don't salt it to preserve it. All right, it's going to spoil, especially in a world where like flies can get into your house, lay eggs and that stuff. It's hot all the time. There's no cool seasons like there is up north. Salt was incredibly important as a preservative. Um, this also meant that if you were like an animal producer, you raise livestock, if you were going to sell your animals at market, you either had to sell them live, like a whole live animal, which would be really, really expensive, or if you're going to sell like small consumable portions, you would have to, you'd have to preserve it with salt before you took it to market. So salt was incredibly valuable for this purpose, incredibly important, and uh, so valuable that actually Roman soldiers were partially paid in salt. Uh, they received a salarium, which is where we get our English word for salary. And so like, it was such a valuable resource that people could trade and partner with it, and the Roman Empire could get away with their soldiers in salt. So the tricky thing with metaphors is that their exact nature of the connection can be unclear because salt has like lots of different purposes. It was used uh, to purify water. It was used to, to like uh, add flavor to things. It was used for uh, temple sacrifices. It also had some symbolic meanings of friendship, of good speech. And so we want to be careful here not to ascribe all those meanings to what Jesus says when he says, you are the salt of the world. Uh, I think very clearly he means the preservative function of salt. And there's actually a clue in the text, if you look back at verse 13, uh, the phrase, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And the Greek word there is actually moreno, for if you like lose your saltiness. That like, means to be corrupted. Uh, it's where we get our word moron from. And it means to like, prove someone's thinking is foolish or corrupted, doesn't make sense. And so Craig Blomberg, he's a New Testament scholar here, says, in a world without refrigeration, salt, particularly on meat, had to be used in such quantities as a preservative that it probably didn't enhance the flavor like it would today. It could be so salty, you wouldn't be like, mmm, salt. Uh, it is precisely salt's role as a preservative, arresting corruption so long as it itself is not corrupted, which we should therefore think of first when interpreting this metaphor. So this means Jesus is assigning a role or a purpose to the kingdom citizens. You are the salt of the world, right? That's a, that's a task, that's like a purpose, that's a mission statement in a sense. This is the function of the kingdom community. We are to serve the role of salt. And so by implication, if we are the salt of the earth, what does that mean the earth is or the world is? Think about that for a second. If we're salt, we're supposed to be a preservative, what does that say about the world that are out of surrounding culture? It means it's rotten meat, right? The surrounding culture is dying. It's rotting away. The surrounding culture stinks and it's filled with maggots. The surrounding culture will make you sick. It cannot give life. It is not wholesome. Okay? And so the surrounding culture, Jesus very consistently in all four Gospels has a very strong critique of worldly systems, civilizations that are not uh, living under the, the righteous reign of, of God and his God's law, that human civilizations, just like Babel, grow to be more and more and more powerful and destructive of human life and sinful and idolatrous. And so that's, that's Jesus's, you know, critique of their civilization they're living under, the Roman Empire. It's our critique too, the United States of America in some instances too. But Jesus's plan for the community he is creating is for it to act like salt, like a preservative that will stop or hold, hold back or even reverse the corrupting nature of civilization. 
but it'll actually be a preservative against death and decay in human societies. The salt-like preserving function of God's people that opposes death and decay is like a priestly function of the kingdom. All right, a priest is someone who intercedes on behalf of sinners. So like in, under the old covenant, priests would go before God for, on behalf of the sins of the people to offer up sacrifices, offer up prayers in order to hold back the, the, the symptoms of death and decay in God's people and turn their hearts back to their creator. And this result was forgiveness of sin, restored relationship with God, and guaranteed blessings of abundance and fruitfulness in the Israelite community. Sometimes Israel's priests were like scummy, self-serving hypocrites who were in league with the nobility, and they would actually like abuse people, take advantage of them, their misfortune to take their land or cause them to go into debt servitude. Uh, that, and a good example would be like the sons of Eli in the book of Samuel, if you're familiar with that, or the later stages of the monarchy. And then at that time, anytime that that kind of thing happened, the nation would also start serving other gods who required terrible things like uh, child sacrifice or like really terrible dehumanizing um, like sex rituals for worship. And so whatever the case was, their failure to be a priest would result in God allowing death and decay to fall back onto the nation of Israel. Famine, plague, foreign invasion, all these elements of uh, like decreation forces would threaten to overwhelm them. So the point of this illustration isn't to say that like we're somehow responsible for appeasing God's wrath against America. God doesn't have a special covenant with America. He doesn't owe America anything. Uh, it's to say that we're the natural, the natural default tendency of every fallen human society. It's towards death and decay and self-destruction, just like a package of raw hamburger that's left in the back of your car on a warm summer day. Okay, that's not a pretty picture. The natural tendency is to drift towards more destructive modes of economics, politics, uh, evil or lying art forms, education. All these areas of human culture are drifting towards death, decay, destructiveness. And Jesus here is saying that the community of people who live under, under him, under his reign, are going to be salt. They're going to be a preservative force reversing that kind of corruption in whatever world that they, they find themselves at. And that's like a priestly function, to stand in the gap and to oppose death and decay. The other metaphor Jesus uses is that of light, to describe the kingdom community of light. Let's read verses 14 to 16 just to get them in front of our, our eyes again. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus here declares that the king community of people who are living under his kingdom are the, the light of the world. And then he drops in a metaphor about cities. I'm going to touch on that first because the, the entire rest of the paragraph is about light. I think we're meant to, to envision here out in the wilderness of the Judean highlands, for instance, like up on a ridgeline, and it's pitch black, right? It's like midnight and there's no moon. And in a world before electricity, that could be terrifying. Think about all the hidden creatures that could devour you, or think about the robbers, marauders, evil men who could be out in the world looking to hurt you. Darkness was like a terrifying thing, very much a symbol of, like, of evil. And all you'd be able to see at that time would be like on this hilltop or this hilltop or this hilltop, cities shining with like lamps and torches and fireplaces and things like that. And so I think Jesus here means for us to be like a hilltop in the darkness, shining our light out. 
as he talks about in the rest of the paragraph. Um, throughout the entire Bible, light is consistently used as a metaphor for knowledge, like knowing God, knowing how to live rightly, right? And the opposite then would be what? Think about what darkness means. If light means knowledge of God, knowledge of righteousness, living a right life before God, what does darkness then mean? Darkness is a symbol of sin and wickedness. And so, for example, the Apostle John, he uses the light metaphor a couple times, actually a lot, but right at the beginning of his, uh, his gospel to say that Jesus is the light of the world, coming into the world. And then he picks it up later in John 3. You're very familiar with the passage John 3.16. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you here. But um, in John 3.16, Jesus is going to draw on this salt and light metaphor just like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. And I also want you to take notice to this good works language that comes about. We're going to come circle back around to that. That your light in the world is good works, according to Matthew 5.16. So I'm going to read John 3.16 to 21 here. The last few verses are where it's going, to, it's going to crop up, but I want to give you the whole context. So listen for the themes of light and darkness, and then your good works giving glory to God. This is John 3.16 here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Here's where the light piece comes up. The light of, has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So in John's passage, um, Jesus is the light. In him is the true knowledge of God and righteousness. When we see Jesus, we're seeing God himself. The goodness and truth of Jesus so exposes the evil and wickedness around him in society that people flee back into the darkness. Or they hate him so much for it that they're going to actually crucify him. Um, but whoever does what is true, according to John 3, comes into the light, so that others can see that their righteousness was carried out in God. In Matthew's passage, Jesus then says that we become the light of the world. His light that he brought into the world through his ministry becomes the light that we then shine forth in our own good works and righteousness. If we remember that darkness is symbolic of sinful rebellion against God, then when Jesus says we're the light of the world, he means that the purpose, again, this is a purpose statement, the purpose of his kingdom community is to expose sin and reveal the true knowledge of God in the world. And this purpose is what I would like to call a prophetic function. Okay, a prophet, uh, like salt, was the priestly function of the kingdom. Light is the prophetic function of the kingdom. A prophet, especially in the Old Covenant, was not somebody who like, told the future. They were somebody who came to God's people at a time when there was a lot of darkness, and they're kind of like God's lawyers. They would, they would almost be like bringing a lawsuit against the nation, pointing out all the ways that they're living in darkness and breaking the covenant, but then also shine the light uh, and promise of repentance and forgiveness. Like, turn back to Yahweh. Turn back to the covenant. He is faithful. You are not, but you can be forgiven if you put your trust in Yahweh. And so that's like the prophetic function of the new kingdom community. That we're going to be light to the world, just as Jesus was light. Uh, whenever the community of Jesus' disciples live lives of righteousness, people will see that the light of Christ is represented there. And so just to be an example of that today, some of you might be hiding in darkness right now, right? Some of you are hiding sin. And what that does is it isolates you. It, it, 
it draws you further and further away from fellowship with others. And then when you're threatened to be exposed by the light, by the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's law, we flee from that. We're scared to come into the light. All right? Some of you are ashamed of your sin. And so that's very easily understood that if you were exposed, if people knew who you really were, hiding out in the darkness, you'd be, you'd be terrified. You'd be so ashamed. But the antidote to that is not to keep running deeper, deeper into the darkness, away from others and away from Christ. The answer is actually to return to Christ and come into the light, expose your sin for what it is, and receive the gift of righteousness from Christ and walk in that righteousness so that you can be a light to others. The uh, John, again, he loves this light metaphor. 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And just as I was preparing this morning a little bit, my heart was particularly concerned for young people. I think I remember my own teenage days especially, and I kind of like hid my sin behind a mask of great grades, really good behavior, lots of extracurricular activities, doing stuff in the Boy Scouts. But behind that was like seedy wickedness and lies and darkness. And you just keep adding lie on top of lie to hide that. And so particularly anybody today, if you're living in darkness, come to the light. But particularly young people, you'll become more and more and more alone and cut off from the rest of your community if you continue to hide your sin. So I tell you to come into the light of Christ, the light that's been presented this morning, to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And uh, you don't need to be ashamed because he's not going to shame you. He'll forgive you and give you his righteousness. So to sum up, Jesus' call for the people of God to be salt and light, Jesus is telling them this is what your purpose is. You're going to be a preserving force in the world, a tide against uh, death, decay, and human civilization. And then each individual Christian is like a tiny granule of salt then that's been rubbed into the surface of the world. So everywhere you find a Christian in the world, you should find somebody who's pushing back against the forces of death and decay wherever they find themselves at. It could be the effects of sin in government, in business, in medicine, in the media, in family, in uh, telecommunications, all right, in poverty relief, in the military. All of these areas of human existence have sin, death, and decay overwhelming them. And God has sprinkled Christians across the globe in order to push back against those forces and fight back against uh, death and decay. And as they do that work, they will be a shining light revealing the true knowledge of God and righteousness uh, through their spirit-empowered living, which will cause either other people to, to be so ashamed of their sin that they'll come into the light and repent and trust Christ and become grains of salt themselves. Or people will be so afraid that they'll flee into the darkness or they'll hate the message and persecute the Christians. Uh, Christ basically guarantees that your identity as a kingdom citizen will be one that receives persecution. And this is really why. Because the world does not like the light. The natural default setting is darkness. So now as I was preparing the sermon, I kind of inductively came to these conclusions that uh, the salt metaphor is really representative of the priestly function of the New Kingdom community. The light metaphor being the prophetic purpose of the kingdom community, and just kind of thought, oh, that has a ring of some Old Testament passage, uh, you know, I've heard. And then as I kind of went into it, I discovered the rabbit trail went way deeper than I even expected, which was really cool. So I want to show you that today, this Old Covenant, Old Testament connection, and then there's another New Testament connection kind of tying these all together in a really, really, really cool way. And they're going to show us that 
I think the apostles very much were thinking of the same way about the Sermon of the Mount and this purpose statement right here at the front that the kingdom of God, the community of God, living under God's saving reign is to be salt and light, to be priests and prophets to the nations. So for starters, remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Josh has done a lot of good jobs setting this up for us. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus had to leave his home as a baby so that he didn't get killed by Herod, just like Moses uh, was under threat of being killed by Pharaoh. Okay, and then Jesus, he, has to, he flees into the, the wilderness, or he's driven into the wilderness really by the Spirit for 40 days of temptation, just like Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. And so Matthew is showing us that Christ is, uh, he's not just living out the old covenant uh, to, like perfectly fulfilling the law, but he's also perfectly fulfilling the, the types, the shadows, the archetypes, things like that that we saw in the old covenant. He's reliving their, their own history as he creates the new kingdom people of God. And this moment in salvation history is very similar to when the Old uh, Testament saints in the nation of Israel were at the mountain of Sinai. And they were, Moses was up on a mountain. Jesus is up on a mountain. Okay? And in the very next verse, Jesus is even going to start quoting Old Testament verses from the Ten Commandments in Exodus, and then kind of either intensifying them or, or reinterpreting them in a way that really gets at the true virtue and ethic behind what the, the Ten Commandments was really about, uh, supposed to be about. And so it's obvious that Matthew wants us to connect this moment, the Sermon on the Mount, with that moment in Exodus 19 and 20 and what God did to Israel before he gave them the law. He said something very specific to them about their purpose, just like Jesus is now. So if you want to turn with me to Exodus 19, it's in the front of your Bible. It's the second book of the Bible, right after Genesis, Exodus chapter 19, and we'll start in verse 1. As you do, I'll kind of set this up here. I really want you to see this for yourself. Uh, I want you to see the specific language that's used here because it's going to get adopted and quoted in our, in our last verse we're going to look at. I want you to see, like, I'm not, I'm not making anything up. This isn't just my wild ideas. I really feel like the scriptures themselves are seeing this moment, Jesus' teaching on salt and light, to be connected with this moment in the Old Testament, and that's going to really inform us here as well. As I read this, Exodus 19, really focus on what is the function God is assigning to the people at Mount Sinai. As he makes the Israelites into a nation, he gives them their law, creates this community, what purpose is he assigning them? All right, so listen to that language of function or purpose here. This is Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that, that day they came into the wilderness. Then Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Did you see it? Right there at the very end in verse 6. What was the purpose of God making Israel into a nation, calling them to himself? It was that you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Just as Christ is calling people to himself to, to, to create a new kind of kingdom. It's right there in verse 6. Israel is supposed to be the light of the world, the salt of the world, as priests and prophets to the surrounding nations through their faithfulness to Yahweh and keeping his covenant. Deuteronomy 4, 6-7, I'm just going to read it here. It's really short. shows this perfectly. What, what was God's intent behind the nation of Israel? It says, 
This is God speaking to them. Keep them, that's the laws of the covenant, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this is a great nation. It is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The whole point of Israel's existence was to be that city set on a hill that all the other nations looked at and thought, wow, their God must be spectacular to protect them the way that he does, to provide for them, to give them those laws that are just brilliant and great for their society. Under the reign of King Solomon, this this was Israel's golden age. It really happened, right? This was the height of their singular devotion towards God. It was like a golden age. They had tremendous material prosperity and influence in the entire region. The wisdom of Solomon was so well known internationally that the Queen of Sheba, this is like from Ethiopia, she traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh and to sit at Solomon's feet. So this was Israel truly being salt and light to the nations, being priests and prophets to point people towards Yahweh. But what happened? Israel lost its saltiness. They became indistinguishable from the other nations. They adopted their gods. They adopted their political and economic policies. They trusted in the might of armies instead of the Lord of hosts. And what happened to them? They were thrown out and trampled under the feet of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But God didn't give up his plan to create a people for himself. That would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the New Testament authors are picking up on this. And this is where things got like really creepy for me as I was preparing, because I know a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is used by Peter in First Peter, and so I thought, oh, I'll go there just to see if he says anything additional worth saying, and he does. I'll just, spoiler alert, he does. And so in First Peter 2, the apostle Peter is going to pick up this thread from Exodus 19. You can turn there now. It's going to be way towards the back of your Bible. You're covering a lot of pages today with me. I appreciate that. First Peter chapter 2. Peter comes right after James and right before 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he's going to pick up this thread and he's going to directly tie it back to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount passage we just read about salt and light. He's going to bring both of these together to where it's just, in my mind, just so obvious he means to see this kingdom of priests and a holy nation tied to Jesus' command to be salt and light. All right, so you can turn there now, 1 Peter chapter 2. And as I read it, listen for not only the exact same language as Exodus 19, but also the exact same language from Matthew 5, 13, 14, and 16, okay? It's a pretty cool, creepy triangle of verses playing off of each other and quoting each other here, um, which I really want you to see. So I'm going to start in verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that's Exodus 19, word for word, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, we heard that last week in the last Beatitude, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Did you see it? It's right there. I might not even have to explain it. In verse 9, he's quoting Exodus 19, word for word, and then tying it into this light and darkness metaphor. And then at the very end there, in verse 12, he's quoting Matthew like 5, 13, and 16 again, word for word, saying, 
they're going to see you and glorify God because of your good deeds, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5.16. That's so cool. Uh, it's almost like Peter was there for the Sermon on the Mount or something, you know? Um, so to sum it all up, again, just to beat it into your heads a little bit, Jesus tells the new covenant people in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. This is the purpose statement for the kingdom. This is why the kingdom community exists, to be salt and light. In the following weeks, he's going to explain his kingdom manifesto for how we live that out in, in certain areas. It's kind of like the, the new code, the new charter for the covenant. Uh, but here in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, he's explaining why the kingdom exists, to be salt, priests, and light, prophets. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time today is to just talk about what that means living in the 21st century in a post-Christian America, in Rapid City. How is Redeeming Grace Church going to be salt and light to the nations surrounding us? How are we going to resist death and decay in our community? And how are we going to display the wisdom of God through our good works and our good deeds, salt and light? First, it goes back to the metaphors. For salt to function as a preservative, it's got to make contact, right? If you take a jar of table salt and push it deep down into a hamburger patty, will that do anything to preserve the meat? No, you've got to take the salt out of the jar, or sprinkle it on, rub it in, right? It's got to make contact. So Jesus does not envision that his kingdom people are going to go hide away in the, in the wilderness, form their own little monastic communities, cut themselves off from the world. We should be distinct from the world, absolutely. We have to be, otherwise we've lost our saltiness. But Jesus absolutely expects that we would be in contact with the world. You can't fight back against death and decay. You can't be a preservative resisting death and decay in our society if you aren't making contact with it everywhere. It's really easy for us to retreat into our little Christian bubbles. We're here in a little bubble on Sunday, which is a good and righteous thing, absolutely. And then on Monday and then on Tuesday and all throughout the week, it's just a little Christian bubble. We're never actually making contact with the world, all right? If you work outside the home, it's a little easier. But we have to be intentional about this. We have to be intentional about getting out there, making friendships, getting outside our little Christian bubbles, grabbing our buddy and saying, hey, let's go join this disc golf club so we can be salt and light there. Or let's go, let's go to Love, Inc. on Tuesday, Thursday nights so we can be salt and light there. Right? We have to be very intentional about making contact. And the same thing is true for light. Right? Just like the, the salt has to make contact, the light can't be hidden. Otherwise, it loses its function. It loses its purpose. You can't hide a shining city on a hill. You can't hide a lamp under a basket. The purpose of light is to disperse darkness. If we are the light of the world, he's saying we can't hide. Remember, the darkness is symbolic of sin and rebellion against God. So if we're going to dispel the darkness of the world, then we can't hide. We've got to be on the hilltop. We've got to be in the center of the house giving light to all people. But we saw in a lot of these passages today, the world's not going to like that. So you have to brace for persecution, to brace for resistance. The darkness doesn't hide the light, but here's the encouragement. Light is not this opposing force to darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. Right? Like you, when you shine a lamp into a room or a flashlight, it's not like the darkness and the light are pushing against each other. The light just obliterates the darkness. And so our encouragement in this is that the darkness has no tools to stand against us. Right? We come bearing the light, shining it into the darkness, and they can't do anything about it. So how do we do that? Well, I found it extremely helpful to look at this era of history I mentioned that I think has some really unique similarities to our current cultural moment. And some of these similarities are going to be kind of eerie, eerily similar. 
And that is about 300 AD, give or take 100 years, in the late Roman Empire. Okay? And why do I say this era has some of the most significant similarity with our time? Four reasons. Number one, Christians were a minority in a culture that misunderstood them. Okay, according to Pew Research, the number of Americans with a biblical worldview, so like tons of Americans identify as Christians, but those that identify as Christians and then have a biblical worldview is like less than 10%. It's pretty low. China is like reaching 7% evangelical, just to give you some, some idea of that. So we are, we are definitely a minority. Evangelical, Bible-believing, faithful to the historic Christian faith, Christians are a minority in America, and America doesn't understand us. The people around us don't understand us. They think America or uh, Christianity is about voting Republican, or they think Christianity is about uh, like living a really, really good life. They don't understand the, the ideas of grace. They don't understand justification. They don't understand the eternal perspective and the resurrection of the dead. So we're very misunderstood. They need us to be light in that regard. Second, Roman culture was obsessed with pleasure, sex, power, money, prestige, wealth, just like ours is today. And the, the world of social media really only heightens that. And Christianity is not about any of those things. And so we're inherently going to be salt, pushing back against those forces that bring death and decay and destruction to our fellow human beings. Third, Rome saw Christianity as a threat to its stability and its prosperity because Christians refused to participate in like civic public religion. So for almost all of human time, there's been no such thing as a secular society. There's no neutral society out there. Your states and religion were merged together and you all communally as a city or as a nation participated in certain rituals, certain feasts. And Christians couldn't do that without committing idolatry and betraying Christ. And because they refused to do that, the Romans said, you are a threat to our, if we don't appease the gods, if you don't step in here and worship with us, like you don't even have to mean it. Just offer this pinch of incense to Caesar to make, to make him happy, to appease the gods, make this sacrifice, make this testimony in public. You can go back and worship Jesus afterwards, but if you don't do this, our whole society is going to come tumbling down. There's such a brilliant picture of this right now, right? We're in the middle of Pride Month, where our, our society is celebrating something that God con- considers like an egregious sin, that harms and damages people and needs to be redeemed by the gospel. And if you don't publicly pay tribute to that, your business is, is, in threat, is going to be threatened, right? We are seen as a threat to society if we don't get on board with the narratives of our day. And here's the last reason I think we have so much in, simil- in common with this era of 300 AD, and that's because we are seen as a threat in, in 300 AD in the Roman Empire, Christians were persecuted by the state. And it's the same thing. It's only a matter of time before Christians in America are seen as a threat towards the agenda that's being set, towards the direction we're going. And persecution has come. Persecution will come. And we have to be prepared for that. And so I think all these characteristics really really characterize our current moment. And so we can learn a lot from what did they do to be salt and light? What did they do in the midst of this cultural moment that's so similar to ours? Okay, there's a classical historian named Larry Hurtado who wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods. And in that book, he notes five distinctives of the early Christian movement that made it radically countercultural, but also really, really, really attractive to the society around it. And as I list these, I want you to think about how close a parallel at our day and age these features of early Christianity, if we just copied them and directly applied them and that's all we did, 
would create a radical counterculture in our day and age that's really attractive to people in salt and light to our community. Okay, so here's number one. The early church was radically multi-ethnic. The Roman Empire was like incredibly tribal, and your, your identity was built up in your race and your identity and things like that. And so the, the very first church council kind of dealt with this. In Acts 15, said, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You can maintain your Roman or your Greek or your barbarian heritage, and as long as you leave sin behind, you can hold on to those elements, redeem those elements of your own culture, and become a Christian and sit at the same table, participating in the same Lord's Supper with somebody who's from the other side of the world from you, looks totally different from you. Radically multi-ethnic. Regardless of race, class, or gender, anyone could join the Christian movement. Our culture today has no tools to answer the racial issues of our day. Black Lives Matter and the social justice movements are just swapping out who's in power. They're not really pursuing reconciliation. Our world needs that kind of salt, just like the early, the early Christians did. Number two, the early church was radical, radically non-retaliatory. Even though they were being persecuted, put to death, they never raised armies or militias. They never fought back. They willingly went to the lion's den, effectively, to the gladiatorial games, or they were, they were willingly killed by the state without fighting back. And people were like, how do you do that? Like, what hope do you have? And Christians were able to say, resurrection of the dead. It's kind of like Obi-Wan in uh, Star Wars. If you strike me down now, I'll become even more powerful, right? And so Christians can say that. They can stand in the face of persecution, even though they were being slaughtered, say, I trust in my God. This is not the end. This is only the beginning. And so in a, in a world where our civic conversations so quickly dehumanize our opponents or vilify our opponents and become really nasty and it's just a game to see who can, who can have the best joke or witty humor against the opponent, we can push back against that. And we can have conversations that stand up for truth and dive in and fight for truth without dehumanizing those around us. And that's how, we're, that's how we can be salt and light. Number three, the early church was radically generous in caring for their own poor and non-Christian poor. And in fact, the Romans recognized this. Emperor uh, Justinian, he was the last Roman Empire emperor after Constantine to try to turn the empire back to paganism. And he wrote this letter to this pagan priest, like complaining about how ungracious the pagans were to their own poor and how everyone was converting to Christianity because they were, they were so generous and caring for their poor and starting hospitals and, and feeding people and going into cities when there was plague and things like that when everyone else was fleeing. And he said this, this is such a funny quote. They, that is the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. He was so embarrassed by his own religion's lack of care for the poor that he was like, yeah, the Christians are so much more loving than us. Okay, what if Christians in Rapid City were so actively engaged in the work of poverty alleviation, in working alongside others in the sticky, relational, transformational work that can only happen in relationship and through discipleship? that they were like, yeah, those Christians have done way more for the poor in a few years than all our government programs have done in decades. That would be an undeniably attractive counterculture. All right, people would want to know more. That would be salt and light. Number four, the early church had an offensive and narrow sexual ethic. The, the Roman Empire, if you can believe it, was probably worse than we are, right? We might be heading in that direction, but they, they were way worse in terms of what was allowable, what was seen as indecent. The Roman Empire was even worse than we are, and Christians came and said, no, you can't have sex with whoever you want. Christians said, you're a Christian now? You have to follow and obey God's commands. This is what he teaches. They were unapologetic about it. And this was scandalous to the Romans. It's scandalous today. But that's what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're going to take flack for it. But you shouldn't care that much, right? as long as you're doing it in gentleness and grace. 
because when you're taking flak, that means you're over the target. All right? You can't, you can't get in there and be salt without making contact. And finally, the early church was committed to the sanctity of life. Abortion was practiced in the ancient world, but it was a lot more dangerous than it is today, so they typically practiced infanticide. And so unwanted children were just left out on the garbage heap to die of exposure or to be like eaten by wild animals, which is just terrible to think about. And Christians said, no, you cannot do that. That is an image bearer of God. And so they actually went around like sweeping up these babies and adopting them into their own families and protecting them and caring for them. And Christians were so vehemently against the practice of infanticide that when the first emperor turned Christian, Constantine, he outlawed the practice in the entire Roman Empire, right? So it took hundreds of years. It took patience and perseverance and steadfastness. But what did it end up changing, the church or the culture? The culture did. Christians reversed the death and decay in their society. And now today, at least, you know, up until the last hundred years or so, it was unthinkable to practice something like abortion, okay? And so when Christians come together and we say, hey, we are the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world, we're going to forestall the direction of death and decay that is the natural tendency of human uh, civilizations. I hope you can see that every single one of these countercultural characteristics, multiracial, radically generous, non-retaliatory, narrow sexual ethic, incredibly pro-life, uh, some of those kind of lean left on what today's political spectrum is, some of them kind of lean right, some of them like non-retaliatory, like neither of our political parties have any category for that. And so this is, this is outside of the mainstream narrative. This is, this is Christianity at its best. And so we would be highly relevant to our cultural moment if we lived like this. We would take flack, we would be persecuted, but we would be salt and light. The author who recorded our passage today also ends his gospel with these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The king is with us. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. He has set Redeeming Grace Church on his hill to be salt and light, to teach Rapid City, to obey all that Christ has commanded. Let us labor here to push back against death and decay wherever you're at, individually, as a family, and communally as a church. Let's be salt and light to Rapid City. Let's be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation in the midst of a people who don't even know their right hand from their left. And in the meantime, the kingdom may, like a little bit of yeast, work its way throughout the whole dough. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is hard. This is who you say we are. You don't, you don't even command us to be salt and light. You just say, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Cause us to do this, to be this for our world out of love. We see the death. We see the decay, destruction. We see our society constantly drifting towards more and more suffering, oppression. Pray that we would stand in the gap, push back against that, shine light into darkness, and halt decay until you return again. Help us to trust in the, these words that you are with us always to the end of the age. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.